Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Physicist Dave Rogstad is off today. On today's podcast, we welcome visiting scholar Dr. Brian Huffling. Uh, first of all, welcome to you, uh, Dr. Huffling. Thank you very much. Good to be here. All right. Uh, Brian earned a PhD in philosophy of religion at Southern Evangelical Seminary, where he is associate professor of philosophy and theology. And we'll get into more of his bio as we go. But Ken, tell us what we can look forward to on the podcast. Yeah, I've really looked forward to this, Brian. It's wonderful to have you here at RTB. Welcome. Um, I know you're a, a scholar, and we we love to have our visiting scholars spend time with us and interview them here on our Clear Thinking podcast. I know you're also going to give uh, a talk tomorrow to the staff, so we're excited to have you. Uh, Joe, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of our basic questions that we ask our guests, what books they like, um, you know, ideas that that resonate with them. But I want to focus a little bit later on Thomas Aquinas, who, as you know, is certainly one of my favorite Christian thinkers. And we we have a, a Thomist here with us. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Wonderful. All right. Uh, go ahead. Brian, we at at Unclear Thinking, we talk a lot about books. Uh, I'm a bookish guy. I've probably got 5,000 print books in my library, and uh, I like to encourage uh, logic and learning, life of the mind. That's why we call it clear thinking. One of the questions I love to ask, and here's what prompts this question. When Blaise Pascal uh, suffered something like stomach cancer, he gave away his extensive library except for two books. He kept his Bible and Augustine's Confessions. So that's the backdrop for this question. <laughs> okay. Outside of the Bible, which is obviously, uh, the Bible has no peer right. in terms of its inspiration and authority. Could you identify two or three books that you uh, you would take on a desert island? Well, let's see. That's a, that's a tough one, because like you, I have many books, and, and I love books as well. Uh, the ones that I kind of go to more than the others uh, for theology and apologetics and philosophy would probably be the Summa Theologiae by, by Aquinas. Um, I, I also reference Norm Geiser's Systematic Theologies quite a bit. Um, it depends on the topic. See, <laughs> these are tough. So um, Intro to Natural Theology by uh, Maurice Holloway is one that I, okay. I reference a lot and, and tells I, I wonder if I if I got that back in print because I always tell my students to hey, you have to have this book for natural theology. This is the best book on there on that topic. So maybe some of those. Okay. When I walk out of my so why didn't I say that one? So there's just so many. Uh, okay, like Thomas Assuma. Sorry, it's, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that first one because I think Ken has talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Yeah, the Summa Theologiae is what you're referencing. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. two million words. Uh, it's quite a quite a text. <laughs> it is, especially for his his age. He was, I think, it was about my age when he wrote it, which makes me feel, you know, inadequate as all get out. So, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, when I say I'm I'm a Thomist or I'm Thomistic, I normally reference the section on theology proper. I nor I'm normally finding myself in the first part or the early part of the second part, which normally is about either God's existence in nature sure. uh, or on creation 
and um, on the nature of man, natural law, ethics, that kind of thing. I don't normally go and reference the, the, the specifically Catholic aspects of it because I'm not a Catholic. But that's the uh, that that is Thomas Aquinas's uh, major work, is his magnum opus, as it were. And uh, he has another one, Summa Contra uh, Gentiles, which is um, another good apologetic work. But the Summa Theologiae is his main work that he wrote for you know, his, his fellow monks to learn theology. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 a great. You, you can just read through it, but it's also really good reference work because it's so nicely divided in sections. You know, one of the things, Brian, that hit me hard when uh, I first started reading uh, the Summa is how fair-minded Thomas is. It it seems he almost considers every conceivable objection, and that's the way it's written. He starts off with objections. He doesn't move to his position, and he he seems— And they're good objections. And Yeah, they're they're (laughs) potent. Um, You know, it seems like he practices what I would call the golden rule of apologetics. He treats other people's ideas the way he wants his treated, and maybe even uh, what I would call philosophical good Samaritanism, he he'll always treat the strongest of the arguments, right, right. you know. And I think that's something apologists today could really learn from Thomas. It, it is. He he not only gives the objections, he gives really good ones. And I think as apologists, we should strive to say what is the best argument against my position, whether it's on the resurrection, problem of evil, God, whatever we're talking about. And say, so, that's the best objection. How do I handle it? And yeah. you're right. I think Thomas did that. Now, with regard to uh, Thomas Aquinas, obviously there are sections of the Summa where he deals with God's existence. He deals with God's attributes uh, that are more kind of philosophy or theology right. proper. He was a Roman Catholic, and he vigorously defends their the Catholic view of the of the sacraments, right. for example. What do you think is uh, the appeal that Thomas has to Protestants like you and I and Joe, uh, where we affirm an evangelical Protestant perspective, but but we find something unique in Thomas? What do you think right. it is that makes him so appealing? I think if everyone I've, I've talked to and know who are Protestant and like Thomas, including myself, it is really just that we like his overall view of of natural philosophy or or general revelation. So I normally say I like Thomas on general revelation or what we can get through nature as, in terms of knowledge about God and, and man. Uh, not so much about that what what's required from special revelation, like the, the uh, study of sin or salvation, that kind of thing, because that is uniquely Catholic in his view. So I think people like the kind of really a common sense view of reality. Uh, those who who aren't really uh, as enamored with analytic philosophy or skeptical kind of philosophy, but who are kind of just common sense realists in a, in a sense about knowing the world. One of my professors used to say, Tom Howe, he said, um, if you stop at the railroad track when there's a train coming, you're a Thomist. <laughs> that kind of common sense <laughs> stuff. I like uh, that. So, I, And I think this classical view of God that maintains a strong creator-creature distinction where that is lost a lot of time in the more process view of God or the theistic personalist yeah. view of God, that really has unfortunately creeped in among evangelical thinking. I have a couple of quotations uh, that start off my chapter on Thomas Aquinas. I call him the quintessential Catholic philosopher. Uh, this is from Hans Kung, a liberal Catholic thinker. He said this about Thomas. He said, all his life, he, Thomas Aquinas, 
too, saw himself primarily as a doctor in Divina, a teacher of Holy Scripture. What's interesting is he has a very high view of Scripture, right. deep respect, uh, so much so that some wondered, is did, did he hold something like Sola Scriptura? I know my Catholic friends are not happy uh, when I <laughs> right. would suggest that, but he has a high view of Scripture. Correct, yeah. And maybe I could also ask this. Um, some people, some Protestants are a little bit put off in that uh, Thomas has uh, what I would call a kind of a Christian Aristotelian synthesis. Yep. Yep. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, you know, it, it seems to me, that as much as I've read Thomas, uh, he quotes Scripture a lot, he quotes St. Augustine a lot, but he also has deep respect for Aquinas. Tell us a little bit about that context. Yeah, so he actually calls Aristotle the philosopher. Yeah. So during the Middle Ages or the medieval period, you either were basically a, a Platonist or an Aristotelian, and a lot of Aristotle's more metaphysical works were quote-unquote lost until just before Thomas uh, lived. Right. And so he th – there was kind of this, this resurgence of Aristotelian philosophy, and he pulled from it as, as he could to kind of um, – give foundation to his his overall philosophy and his own theology, because I, I think that he, along with with myself, and that Aristotle was very grounded yeah. in his his quote unquote kind of a common sense view of of the world that you know we don't we don't posit these these forms that are separate from our our everyday experience. Uh, and he doesn't see the need really to in Bible have skeptical views. Uh, he doesn't think we, should, we necessarily need to explain, for example, how I know or, or do I know that the water bottle is in front of me right here. Yeah. But um, he's just very commonsensical. Aristotle is, is just kind of an average, your, what you would normally think of as, as a very, no pun intended, down-to-earth kind of commonsensical right. kind of person. He's very complicated in how he does his philosophy, but he's he's very much trying to just explain uh, not do I know the tree, but how do I know it, and what is it about the process of knowing it? And so I think that Aquinas pulled from this uh, very useful and very intricate, sophisticated um, view of, of philosophy, especially of metaphysics and epistemology, to buttress his own theology. Here's a quotation from uh, Gerald McDermott. He is an Anglican theologian, evangelical. He says, quote, Thomas accepted from Aristotle what he thought was in accord with Christian doctrine, reject what he thought was not and explained why, and use some of Aristotle's categories to help teach Christian faith. You agree with that? Yes, yes. And same thing with, with, with Augustine. So many it's ironic, many people who who don't like us using Aristotle through Aquinas will use Augustine. Right. But Augustine also very much used Plato. And it said the same thing about Plato as you just read. That uh, in his retraction, there we're we're going to take what's good from Plato, and leave the rest. So there's something that, that Plato said they're going to be correct. So we're going to take that and see how we can apply it to Christianity. Very good, Joe. Any questions? Yes. At this point? Uh, first, for you, Ken, um, is the five ways associated with uh, Thomas? Do I do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the question. Uh, Brian, that shows you how much of a layperson I am. I haven't read much of uh, Thomas, but I think I recall a little bit of the five ways. 
for the benefit of those of us uh, lay people who like to engage the skeptics in our lives, do you think um, they, the skeptic that is, can benefit from reading uh, writings such as the five ways? That is, I think a lot of skeptics have this idea that not until the scientific revolution do we have reliable knowledge about anything. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder how you might comment on that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And yes, I do think that that anyone can can benefit from it. I will say that the, if you got a hundred books on the five ways, probably half of them, from what I understand, would be somewhat correct, and some would the other half would be kind of wrong because. To understand the five ways, you have to understand that they're really predicated on this very Aristotelian kind of view of philosophy. So, for example, the first way, for example, um, is based on uh, Aristotle's view of change, which imbibes his view of what he calls act and potency and these kind of things and, and how uh, there can't be certain kinds of infinite regresses. So they are very profitable for the skeptic or anybody else to read as long as we understand uh, that we shouldn't be flipping about them or read them through today's eyes. Like, for example, someone, someone might say that the first way says, well, there can't be a change unless something changes it. Or to use the word that he uses, motion, something can't be put into motion unless something else puts it in motion. Well, some might say, well, that that defies Newton's laws. Uh, but Aquinas isn't talking about a, a law of physics. He's referring to a law of, of metaphysics regarding change. So yes, they're, they're very good. We just, we just have to maintain uh, or understand the, the context in which they were written. There also are, are good commentaries on Aquinas. Uh, Brian Davies has a good commentaries if people are interested on that. Um, but the five ways are, if anyone knows something about Aquinas, it's normally the five ways. They're very short, uh, and they're pretty easy to understand and have been very enriching as well. I, I have a short section, uh, an abbreviated section, Brian, in my chapter. Uh, one, uh, from motion to the unmoved mover. Uh, two, from effect to the first cause. Three, contingent being to necessary being. Four, degrees of perfection. And finally, five, a, a design. Brian, some people today, some leading Christian apologists and philosophers, they don't consider, uh, I guess I could put it this way, they don't think there are proofs for God's existence. Right. They think there are evidences. Mm -hmm. How do you see these? Do you see these as more uh, proofs for God's existence or pointers or evidence to God? Yeah, if they are if they are sound, then we do have a demonstration. So Aquinas's arguments for God, he's trying to give a, a logical and metaphysical demonstration. Uh, so someone might say, well, we can't give a, any kind of um, certainty regarding or logical certainty regarding God's existence. Well, Aquinas is trying to give a metaphysical certainty. That is, if if, if our universe and, and all of created being is contingent, changing, and temporal, then there's got to be some kind of cause that itself is not changing, temporal, and, and contingent. So he's trying to give an actual demonstration that would prove uh, beyond a metaphysical doubt, that that God is required. He's a necessary being. So Aquinas, as well as Aristotle and many in that, in that vein, are trying to say that God is not just a probable being, but he's a necessary being. Yeah. So yeah, there is a distinction people want to make in apologetics, even if we should even try to argue for God or not. Uh, Aquinas is certainly giving what he thinks is, is, a, is a metaphysical demonstration to the necessity of God's existence. Joe, follow up there. No, I'm tracking. Thank you. 
Okay. Let's talk a, a little bit more uh, about Thomas. Now, Brian, one area that is a somewhat controversial, um, when Thomas talks about divine simplicity, uh, some people kind of push back on that. You know, the, the idea God doesn't have parts, God's not made up of component parts. Um, can you explain a little bit about what divine simplicity means? And uh, some people say, for example, well, if you is it, isn't the Trinity, aren't you making distinctions in the Trinity? Talk, talk to us a little bit about what Thomas means by divine simplicity. Okay. So Thomas gives various ways in which he thinks God is not made up of parts. So obviously most Christians would say that God doesn't have a body and a soul. So it's not made up of those kind of parts. Um, but we would also say that we have aspects to our being that are more metaphysical or philosophical in nature. So, for example, I'm I'm sitting right now, but I have the potential to stand up and walk around. Um, Th Thomas would deny that God has that kind of potential in, in a passive way to be affected, such that he would have both potentiality and actuality, where actuality just means existence. So you and I both actually exist and also have the potential to not exist or to walk across the room. So Aquinas says that, that God doesn't have these kinds of metaphysical parts because if he did, they would have to be put together. So like his first way says, if you've got something changing, that change is going from something being potentially X to actually X. So if it has both the potential and the actuality, then it, those are different metaphysical aspects of its being. And I, I try to liken these to, to Legos for people to, to try to understand. So my son okay. loves Legos. I like I like Legos too. Sure. So if the Legos represent different metaphysical parts, uh, someone has to put those Legos together to make the set or make whatever you're trying to, to do with Legos. So we would say God is the is the is the person who's ultimately putting these various parts together of of existence. But if God had these these kind of parts, then then someone will have to put him together as well or be responsible for for that. So we say that. And Thomas thought that if, if God is complex, meaning having different parts, then he's composed. Now, that is uh, argued against by certain people, of course, but that's his overall position, that there's nothing in God that's, that separates one aspect of his being from another. He's not modified by different properties. So, for example, if I walk outside and stand in front of the sun for an hour, I'm going to get a sunburn. My, my skin's going to change color. So I'm modified, in a sense, by the sun. God is not passively modified by anything. So even his attributes are one with his essence. So and if we say that God um, has love, mercy, power, for Aquinas, that means God is love, mercy, and power. Uh, now, in our minds, we can define love, power, and mercy differently, but in the divine essence, if what Aquinas is saying is true, and if God is an infinite being, then all those really are just what the divine essence is. And we're trying to pick out these different attributes because our minds are finite and we know things through through composed contingent reality. Also, if God is infinite and he had parts, you would seem to have an infinite number of parts, which you, if, if our arguments are correct, you can't add up an infinite number of parts. So if he had parts, he wouldn't really be infinite then. So if we think of, for example, the transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty, and being, right. uh, they're correlates to, to one another. Mm -hmm. they, they, there is a, a unique connection be, between them. Right. Now, some people, again, push back here and say, well, if, if you don't recognize uh, divisions, uh, does that 
is that problematic toward the Trinity, where you have one what and three who's, a, a divine essence and God's uh, subsistence, one and three? Right. So there are two overarching kind of models for the Trinity. You have the, the Eastern model, which emphasizes more of the of the individuals, and, and some would even say there are different parts to the divine Trinity in that school of thought. Then you have the more Augustinian uh, Thomistic view, which is more of a psychological, which emphasizes the unity of God. Some people see the different persons as parts, and if you see them in that way, um, then then yeah, God would, would have parts. I don't think that's what the creeds taught. I don't think that's what what traditional Orthodox Christianity teaches as far as God having these different parts. They're just different. They're not modes. They're not going to modalism, but uh, they are different persons, not in the exact way that you and I are, because we have our different minds and separate yeah, being. Right. But if you see this as a problem, then you probably already see the different persons as individual parts to begin with. Whereas if you start with simplicity and uh, with Aquinas and and say we have this one essence that is expressed in these three persons, uh, where again person is is used analogically, not to mean exactly like you and I are. He says they are different ways or or oppositions in the relations to each other, uh, where where in some way they're not parts. The difficulty here is for Aquinas, we can't know the divine essence because we don't have it's, it's infinite, he's infinite and we're finite. Yeah. But the Trinity just is the divine essence. So we're not going to be able to fully grasp this. So the best we can do is to say this isn't contradictory. Let's try to make sense of what scripture teaches to be able to use models to explain it the best we can. Um, but unless you already, I think, already see the divine persons as individual parts, we don't necessarily have to, to go in that direction. Okay. Uh Let's go a little bit further here, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about our language about God. Right. Uh, Joe, we talk. Joe is our word person here. We talk about univocal definitions that are the same meaning. We talk about equivocal, where there are two different meanings. Thomas talks about analogical language. I would describe it as both like and unlike, right. mm -hmm. like an analogy. How important is that to Thomas Aquinas? How important should it be to Christians to think about God in analogical terms? This is a core issue, and I think a lot of debates actually come back to this. So I actually was on a panel a few years ago on the, the topic of divine simplicity. And interestingly, a lot of the discussion just came back to, is our language univocal or analogical? So, so to say it's analogical would be to say, well, if I say my shoes are good, your book is good. The water is good. My, this microphone is good. Those are all good in relation to what they are in, in terms of their nature. The, the microphone is good if it works properly, if it makes, makes you sound good. Your shoes are good if they are comfortable and protective and stylish. So what makes one thing good isn't the same thing that makes something else good. So if we use the word good in a somewhat different or analogical way regarding things I can just reach out and touch right now, then how much more is, is that going to be analogical to something like God? That's not even something I can sense or, or really understand. So this really does come down. This is a, a very important issue um, in our debates, in our theology. And a lot of times people have wrong ideas because they're trying to make God into our image mm -hmm. and try to use language in this univocal way where if I say, you know, I have knowledge— and then I say God has knowledge. Well, that doesn't mean the same thing because I have knowledge in a passive way. I learn through time and change. 
unless we want to say God is in time and changing, which is not the classical view, then God's knowledge isn't like ours at all. So in in that context, so let me uh, say it, it's like ours analogically, not not equivalently worth nothing yeah. like ours, but it's not like ours in the way yeah. that we have it. Yeah. So when we call God Father, uh, I had a human father. You've had a human father, Joe. You have a human father. Um, a univocal, there would be the same. Equivocal, two different. Uh, analogical, God is like a father right. and unlike a mm -hmm. father. Right. So, and this is where Muslims get tripped up because they think if 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 God had had a son and he's a father, that that means he has somehow had physical relationships with with women and had children. So we call God our father because like a father, he protects us, he cares for us, he loves us, he tries to will our good and do what is good for us, like sending his son yeah. Jesus for us. So we say he's he's like a father because we understand what fathers are. And a lot of the biblical language about God uses our experiences to describe him because that's all we have to go with is our experience. Sure. So God is a uh, we say God is a fortress or God is a rock. We know what they are. They're they're strong, they're 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 unmovable. Uh God isn't made of brick and mortar, but he is like those things in the sense that he protects us and is strong and immutable. Very good. Yeah. Joe, I question? Late question. Yeah, late question. A fascinating discussion. Um, when I look at certain passages in the Bible, I wonder if this applies or am I thinking of something entirely different? That is, when you come to places say in Genesis where God regrets that he uh, made mankind, or he's asking Adam, where are you in the garden? Or things like grieving the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Are we talking about this issue there? And if so, how do you resolve that? We're, we're talking about the issue, yes, in terms of how we understand God, how language applies, applies to God. Uh, so some Christians say we have to start with the Bible for our knowledge about God. And then others say we start with our experience of the world. And even Paul says in Romans 1 that we know certain things about God through creation, about his divine nature and eternal power through what has been made. So if we believe that the, the universe and God's effects are temporal, changing, and material, and there can't be an infinite regress of one thing causing something else like that, and we have to arrive at a cause that is itself not temporal, changing, and material – then we arrive at an eternal, unchanging, necessary being. Well, if that's the case, then an unchanging, necessary, uh, eternal being can't actually go from one moment to the next, which would be required for a regret to take place. So I would say, along with, with people who all also are in this, this vein of thinking, is that these are figures of speech that aren't wrong. They're not false. They just aren't to be understood literally in, in the sense that they're written. So when we say that God went down to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we understand that that what, what the text is saying is that he's going to go there in a sense and look and see what's going on. But we don't want to deny his omnipresence by saying he's not already there. Right. Or when he smells the sacrifices or hears what his people are, are doing, we don't think that God has a literal nose or ears and, and sensing things unless we want to have a lot of problems uh, with our theology. So when we hear things like this in the Bible, they are true, but they're they're true in a figurative way, kind of like when we say it's raining cats and dogs. No one thinks there's cats and dogs falling out of the sky, but there's a literal truth there that means it's raining really hard. So there is a, a core truth there, like when God says God re regrets. It's, that means for us that God hates sin 
and it quote unquote grieves him, as it says in the text, not where he is as passively dependent on us for his happiness, but that this is a way that the biblical writers tell us he hates what we're doing to his creation and our relationship with him. That's helpful. Brian, uh, you've touched on this, but I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it. Uh, compare the way Thomas would think uh how God knows, how God thinks, as opposed to you and I. I mean, okay. I'll gather data and examine it, and I'll draw an inference, and then I might change my mind and go back to it. Uh, but that's not what Thomas says God's thinking right. is like. So back in 20, I think it was 2019, there was a philosopher who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And he said, God cannot both be omnibenevolent or all good, and omniscient, because if God is both omniscient and all good, we have contradictions. So he says, if God's omniscient, then he knows what it's like to lust. But if he knows what it's like to lust, then he can't be all good. The problem with that is that this person, Peter Adderton, uh, holds that God knows things in the same way that we do. So yeah, I know what it's like to lust. We experience that. Uh, we have knowledge of things that we don't experience. Like I, I know China's there. I haven't experienced China. But God, for Adderton, for him to know something like lust would mean that God experiences it in a, in a passive kind of way. Well, to say that God experiences things in this kind of passive way would mean he's changing, he's temporal, he's passable, he can be affected by us, he's composed, and therefore he's a composer. For Aquinas, uh, God doesn't know like you and I. He doesn't have the five senses. He doesn't take in data passively like, like we do. Rather, and this is interesting because a lot of, a lot of Christians think that this is a, a – a view of God that that makes him less somehow of a, of a knower than we are, but really, uh, God knows us not by looking out and seeing us, but because He is our cause. But God didn't just for for Aquinas did not just cause us and kind of sit back like the watch analogies or the clock analogy says, where He's kind of winded it up in this kind of deistic notion. But God is actively keeping us in existence, like his second way says, going back to the five ways. So if God is actively keeping us in existence and causing us, then he knows us not passively, but by being our active cause. And by causing us through his own power and will, he knows us through himself, which is a more perfect way of knowing something. Wow. Uh, another element here, when we talk about, um, uh, Thomas talks about things you can know about God from nature, his his existence. You can see his power. You can you can reason that way. Um, but then there are, there is a, other issues like the Trinity or the incarnation. Right. Sometimes we talk about uh, general revelation and special revelation. Sort that out a little bit from Thomas's perspective. Okay, yeah. So some things that Thomas and others believe that we can know about God through nature his existence, that he's simple, he's unchangeable, he's eternal. Uh, and it's interesting, a lot of non-Christians come to the same conclusions that we do. So, for example, uh, Muslims oftentimes have, if they have a philosophical view of God, are very much similar to ours, that God is simple, unchangeable, eternal. Aristotle had the same kind of views, that God is, is uh, he had to know one God for every cosmological sphere, but they were uh, simple, eternal, and immutable in those kind of ways. So, that's a demonstration to show that you can reason to God's existence in nature through what has been made. That's what Paul says we can do anyway. But there are certain things that we can't get through 
our investigation of God through nature, which is you mentioned the Trinity, the incarnation, uh, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Uh, and those are required through special revelation. And also it really short, it really makes the 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 path a shortcut for us to be able to know God. We don't have to spend our whole lives investigating nature. God has given us his word. And so God tells us his plan of redemption for us. So there are things that we can only get through special revelation, and God has given that to us so we can know him directly in that in that regard. Directly in quotes, I guess. <laughs> Brian, I came across a, an interesting quotation from um, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, he said that uh, he preferred Augustine over Thomas, and I, that's not common for a pope to say, but. Uh, one of the points he made is he simply thought that um, Augustine wrote in more personal terms. That is, when he read the Confessions, he felt like it was a, a compassionate friend who was also writing about his own life, right, right. where he thought with Thomas, he loved Thomas, but he found him maybe excessively philosophical. Any comments about that? Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that caricature. And I also, and then Aquinas loved Augustine too. He used Augustine as, as an authority for his own positions. Um, but yeah, Augustine did write more in this kind of more narrative yeah. way. And Aquinas and most of, or a lot of his works at least, they are more theological manuals, you know, sy systematic theology or or the, the sum of, of all theology against the Gentiles, for example, or yeah. as you know, disputed questions on the power of God or these kind of things. These are trying to teach his fellow monks about God and their faith, both philosophically and theologically. Although he wrote commentaries in the Bible as well, yeah. um, and Thomas. But I, I would probably agree that yeah, Augustine is more of kind of a more of a, a, a narrative, personable kind of writer in that regard. I, I think uh, Eleanor Stump, a Catholic philosopher, even she said at one point in a lecture she gave that she thought that maybe Thomas had learned from Augustine that there are parts of his writings that seem a little more personal uh, in the way he thought through these kinds of issues, which I thought was was kind of interesting. Joe, question, comment? Yeah, yeah I have another question on this overall topic. You, you may have answered it, but I'll ask the question so the answer can come right after the question. Uh, what is at stake here? That is, I have a book somewhere in my library, not, not as big as Ken's or yours, <laughs> layperson's library, um, on this topic. I think it's called All That Is in God. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but uh, when I read the first part of it a while ago, uh, it seemed to be saying that we're at a crossroads in uh, contemporary theology. So what what is the issue? What's at stake here if we don't adhere to divine simplicity. So years ago, Norm Geiser said something that I thought was very profound. I asked him if, if he said it or got it from somebody else, and he says, he says he didn't even remember saying it. But there are basically two conceptions of God according to the Geiser, and I think he's right here. One is a, a classical Thomistic view where God is um, simple, unchanging, eternal, and so forth, where he's pure act. He's either pure act or he's act and potency. If he's act and potency, that is more of the model we get with process theology, where there's a passive pole and an active pole with God. I'm not saying Christians are, are process theologians. There's a there's a, a stronger view of that with people like Hartshorn and, and Whitehead and so forth. But there's also a view called theistic personalism, 
which has come into vogue, what that's what Brian Davies calls this kind of view where we make God very much like us. We use a lot of univocal language. Uh, well, now we have the open theist camp that says that God is not the God of the philosophers. He's the God of the Bible. He's a God of love, not, not a God of, of philosophy. So Thomas and the Thomists, I can put it that way, will argue that what's at stake is God being a, a creator or God being a creature. Either have God being pure act and not needing a cause or being composed of act and potency and not being able to account for his own existence. I think you're referring to James Dolezal's book, All That Is. Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, James would, would argue the same thing, that what we're seeing, and I like the word crossroads, because you're either going to affirm the classical notion of God that he is, and there's pretty much four uh, parts here for this view, is that God is simple, immutable, eternal, and impassable. If you affirm those, you're a classical theist. If you deny any one of those, you're going to go down another whole road. So your, your entire philosophical theology is going to go one way or the other, depending on what you think about things like divine simplicity, divine immutability, that God doesn't change, eternality, and, and impassibility. So your whole view of God, and as Norm Geiser used to say, our view of God is the most important thing that we can we can have because it, it informs our ethics, our view of the afterlife, meaning. So it does have, it does have a profound influence and effect on, on our views. I hope mm -hmm. I answered your question. Yes, very well. Thank you. Let me let me uh, turn a little bit to you and your own ministry, your own uh, teaching. Um, do you think that Christian apologists um, struggle with anything in particular? I mean, to have a life of scholarship, a life of reason, reflection, uh, reading, uh, does that tip the scale at times to struggle with pride and things like Absolutely that. Absolutely, it does. I've seen it a lot. And there's something about the apologetic mindset, I guess, and the philosophical mindset too, that, you know, we want to be right. We want to win the argument. And so I've heard of people, Christians high-fiving each other after pretty much demolishing Jehovah's Witnesses in their arguments and things like this. Yeah, there's definitely a, a problem with wanting to be prideful, wanting to get accolades, you know, I want to get all the publications I can, all the research, just for my own namesake, I have that same problem as well. I want to, you know, you want to make our our, our name well-known in the field and that kind of thing. And that's something that we all, in, in academia in general, we struggle with a lot of times, not everybody, but right. um, it, it is a it is a <laughs> temptation just by virtue of what we do. But being a policy, you want to win the arguments, you want to, you want to be smart. Uh, we want our students to think we know all the, all the answers, so there's definitely an issue with that. Yeah, we've got to be very careful with that. You know, it seems to me that Thomas, um, as brilliant as he was, there seems to be a, a real humility. There I mean, does. as much as we can kind of know him through his writings, right. he has that. He, like I mentioned, uh, in in reading the Summa, I was first struck by wow he doesn't he doesn't present his argument first he really does take time to analyze the challenges uh, whether it be Manichaeanism or other challenges about maybe God and and evil right um, in light of that Brian if you were to go back and maybe do your training over again or if you were to uh, study apologetics again, 
Would there be anything you would focus a little differently upon or what are your thoughts about that? I would probably try to do one. I, I would be a better student. You know, we try to do well with the time that we have. Um, I did a lot of, I had a lot of classes. So I would have, I would like to go back now that things have kind of calmed down and be able to read slower, understand <laughs> things better, um, do, do better work. And in my professional career, I would like to have more time dedicated to to research and publishing. I've, I've taught a lot. Uh, our school's emphasis is on teaching, which is great, and it should be. Yeah. Um, but that means I've, I've taught more classes and haven't done as much publishing as I'd like to. So those, if that kind of counts as, as a, what I would do differently, I would try to focus more on that uh, as well. Uh, but just being being better, I always try to compare myself with people I think are, are better than me and 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 are greater than I am and smarter. And so I, I say, what what did they do that I didn't do? And and you know, read more. I would I would say I would like like to have read more, like to have listened to more people, um, and that's something we probably get more as we get older. <laughs> I, I've often said when I retire, I'll read all the books right. I should have read right. uh, while I was working. Uh, Joe, um, you know, as we talk about uh, challenges, um, Brian, Joe, and I talk about the issues that you know, really strengthen our faith. And other times there are issues that challenge our faith. Is there something, is there an issue, an argument or, or an issue that is difficult for your, your faith? Let's see. Uh, the, always, the, the one that everyone deals with, because all of us are affected by it, is the problem of evil and suffering. So we always have to ask, you know, we always do ask, I guess, why does God allow this? And I think that we can give philosophical arguments uh, yeah. to say, I, I can argue and, and demonstrate why I think God exists alongside evil, but I still don't understand why God allows so much suffering. That, that would be one question. Uh, in my view of philosophy, even if the—so Aquinas would have rejected the Kalam argument. Right. Uh, he thinks that uh, the universe— could have possibly been infinite in the past in terms of time and duration. Um, I like I like the fact that our Big Bang cosmology shows us that there's a beginning. I think that really helps our our position. So it would uh, I wouldn't like it <laughs> if uh, if if the universe was shown to have been eternal. I think we still can have arguments that that require God's existence because the the, the universe will still be contingent and changing, therefore couldn't account for itself. But I think tomorrow, if the headlines read. Scientists now think the universe has always existed. That would cause us a lot of work to do that yeah, that uh, yeah. we wouldn't have to otherwise. <laughs> a lot of a lot of scientists are, are being converted because of the of the universe having a beginning. Um, but a lot, it was harder to understand how can the universe be eternal and God still be necessary, or the universe being temporally infinite and God still be necessary. So Thomas believed that the universe had a beginning and origin. But he didn't think that the Kalam argument, which began with Islamic scholars, right. he, he didn't feel that that was a valid and sound uh, argument for right. God. Joe, any last questions yeah, or yeah. comments? Uh, I'd like to know what you're doing now. I, I see that you're a, a, a chaplain with the Air Force. Uh, tell us some of what you're doing now. And you also have your own channel, uh, YouTube channel. Well, so that's right. Yes, I tell just us about your work. channel, uh, YouTube and podcast called Classical Theology with Dr. Brian Huffling. Um, finally jumped into that. I was scared too because I knew the the commitment and learning curve would be great, but I'm I'm doing that now. 
Uh, I am a chaplain with the Air Force. I've been a chaplain and candidate for about 17 years with the Air Force. Uh, I work currently at Dobbins Air Reserve Base as the deputy wing chaplain, which basically means I look after our, our team chaplains. I kind of make sure that their reports are done, their evaluations are done. I do as much ministry as I can, preaching and that kind of thing. Um, I uh, my, my first book, Manuscript is due in a few days, so I'm working oh. on that. So finally getting some of that done. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, I'm working on another book, uh, much inspired by you and, and, and Hugh Ross and others on UFOs. Wow. So I'm trying. I did my, I had a master's degree with the Air Force, and my research project was on UFOs and national security. So I'm trying to take that and make it into a, a Christian book as well. Um, and and uh, besides that, I'm, I'm teaching a lot uh, of classes and, and just trying to do what I can. So if our... Our group of folks want to contact you, or how do they how do they get to your podcast? Uh, how would they find you? So my podcasts are on the normal spots like uh, Spotify, Apple, and it's just called Classical Theology with Doctor Brian Huffling. Um, YouTube, same same name. Uh, my email is bhuffling at ses.edu, or you can contact me at classicaltheology at gmail.com. Okay, uh, I think the last question that I have for you is. Tell us some personal things uh, about your family. Do you have a favorite sports team? What kind of music do you like? Okay. Uh, married, be 20 years in January. Wow, great. Yeah, 20 years. I have three kids, uh, three-year-old, 11, and 18. <laughs> a little bit of a span there. Um, my favorite uh, sport would be golf. Okay. I haven't gotten a chance to play a lot lately, but that's my favorite sport. It's kind yep. of a, our family sport. Growing up, he's played a lot of golf. Um Favorite music? I like instrumental guitar, so I like Joe Satriani. Okay. I like uh, I like his rock style guitar. I also like classical and Celtic kind of guitar. So very good. A little bit different, but I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, we're honored to have you on Clear Thinking, to have you here at RTB as a visiting scholar, and I'm looking forward to hearing your lecture tomorrow. Uh, Joe, we have some pretty pretty outstanding people in the uh, RTB scholar community, don't we? Indeed. And uh, you certainly are one of those. Thank you. Our guest uh, has been Dr. Brian Huffling. Again, uh, you can check out uh, his YouTube channel and podcast, Classical Theology with Dr. Brian Huffling. It's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter, and that's at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll, we'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.